Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he's the guy who's very, very carefully selected a rogue, a warrior, a cleric, and a wizard to be a part of his party. It's Matt Morgan. I spent a lot of time this past weekend learning several jokes in sign language and I guarantee no one has ever heard them before. But that, yeah... (laughs) That tracks, Matt. That absolutely tracks. Uh, up next, the guy whose magic party will consist of just four random changelings. That's Dana Roach. Um, Joey, I'm a very organized person. And since fall is upon us, I wanted to do my Christmas shopping today. I couldn't get the Jace sneakers because they sold out right away. But I did get <laughs> Matt a Gideon Jura weightlifting belt. And I got you a Liliana Vest chain veil themed COVID mask. So... Christmas shopping for the cast is done. Very nice. Dana, I I would wear the crap out of that. That actually sounds like really, really awesome. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the Commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all that data a little more context. Fellas, what is it that we are talking about this week? We are going to revisit the threat assessment topic. It's something that we feel deserves a little more attention than we gave it. So we need to circle back to that and we're going to talk a little bit more in depth. Yeah, this is a a pretty important thing in commander games. I would say finding out who the threat is, just different techniques, different lenses that we use when you're trying to evaluate uh, who is the threat and how to vanquish them during a game of commander. So that is what we are going to be talking about today. But of course, before we do, we have to give a huge, huge, huge thank you to Josh Lequai and the whole team at the Command Zone podcast. They handle all of the post-production work that you're seeing on screen now for the podcast. They do an excellent job. So thank you guys so much. And of course, we really have to thank our sponsor for the show too. We would like to thank our sponsors for sure, Card Kingdom and TCG Player. I have a Card Kingdom envelope right here that just arrived today with some upgrades for a deck and I paid for it with store credit I got from their fantastic buy list. TCG Player also offers a really deep collection of singles, whether you're building something new or just upgrading an existing deck. They have anything you would want there as well. So simply pick the card you'd like on EDH Rec and select the store of your choice from the link below. Doing so supports both the site and the show, and we really appreciate it. Well, and if you choose to support the podcast directly, you can now do that as well. So if you go to patreon.com slash EDHRecCast, you can sign up to be a patron of the podcast. Uh, We appreciate everybody's membership so far. We've been going for a few weeks now, and it's been amazing, whether it's the Discord, some of the challenges stats our patrons have submitted. But we also owe some EDH recognition to our patron of the week. That is Ryan (laughs) Sanford. Um, So you have been EDH recognized. Um, Thank you for being the first patron actually to sign up. So therefore, you're the first patron that we're going to shout out. (laughs) That's that's really, really awesome. We're... uh, Let's see. We we shouldn't say you rock, Ryan, but we can say you wreck. <laughs> no, no, doesn't no, work. We, doesn't we work. Can't. Miss the mark. We really can't. I can't. <laughs> I, I can't. EDH recommend that as the delivery. <laughs> okay. No, we need to move on. Uh, there is something else that we want to mention here too. There is a really cool feature of EDH Rec uh, that we want to just sort of remind everyone is out there. There is a shop for EDH Rec. If you like the uh, different shirts that you see, the EDH Rec playmats, the EDH Rec cast playmats, we've got all of that merch on our EDH Rec store. So that is shop.edhrec.com. So Joey, let me understand you right. If you want to use one of those 
neato play mats that we happen to use on twitch.tv slash EDH recast every Wednesday <laughs> evenings. Um, some of those play mats we can purchase for ourselves. Yes, absolutely. There's all of that cool EDH rec merch that you can find on the storefront for EDH rec. And there is a cool icon on the front page of the EDH rec page that you can just click on that. It will take you right to the shop and you can browse through the different items that we've got going on there. It's really, really cool. But also, you know, Matt, since you're so good at plugging different stuff, I'm going to try my hand at it here. You can also subscribe to the Patreon tier that signs you up to automatically get some of that merch too. So plug, 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 Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. Did this work? I'm I'm like over three. I think, I think sorry, we I should plug the main topic. How about that? You know what? That sounds like a like a good idea. Let's move on right now to it. Let's get to the main topic of threat assessment, how to identify and vanquish different threats in commander games, which can really be the difference between victory and defeat for you if you have identified not only who is the threat, but what and how to deal with it. So we're going to just sort of apply a couple of different lenses that we like to use when we are playing commander to try and figure out where we should be focusing a whole bunch of our attention. This is a really tricky thing to do in commander too. Um, very regularly in games, I'll have a situation where um, someone attacks me and like that's always wrong whereas <laughs> if they attacked somebody else that would have been the right threat assessment to have made so i think we really want to work on like helping people make those correct decisions and learn how they just shouldn't attack me ever and they should probably focus on attacking you two particularly I, uh -huh. I i don't know if that's a good strategy that that, that assessment <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get into it we'll, we'll dig into it we'll see what conclusions oh, okay. we come to That's oh great. my goodness so yeah let's just uh sort of start off with big ideas maybe and then eventually we'll hone down into a couple of different uh, perspectives a couple of different points of view to use when talking about threat assessment but like are there any initial thoughts that you guys have first when you're just sort of vaguely approaching the entire huge category of threat assessment that kind of come to mind based on your experiences in the game of magic over the years well, for me, the first thing that you want to keep in mind when you sit down to a game, when you're kind of assessing the different commanders that are going to be played in that game, is figure out what your role in the game is going to be. If you're playing Aloro, for example, you're probably going to be the controlling deck. You want to make sure you're taking things slow, setting things up, and making sure that people can't out-resource you in the game. Likewise, mm -hmm. if you're the mono-red deck, chances are you're going to be the most aggressive deck at the table. Now, obviously, there are different outliers depending on your commander, um, but one of the good questions to ask yourself, and it kind of comes from uh, probably the original Magic Strategy article, is who's the beatdown? Who is the person that wants to be going fast versus who's the person that wants to take it slow, control the pace of the game so that their resources over time are going to scale better than everyone else's? It's it's an amazing article. It's 20 years old at this point, but so many of the principles that, that Mike Flores covers in that article all those years ago, they still apply to commander games in this day because it's just trying to figure out what is your role in any given game based off just the commanders and the information at hand. Yeah, and and for me, one of the, uh, the biggest lessons, takeaways, I guess, um, to sort of apply taking that advice and applying it to a commander game, which is a much more longer form game than the one-on-one -on -one constructed formats, that is very much that like which of the decks when I sit down, which of us will benefit the most from a long game and which of us will benefit the most from a shorter game. And that can be 
a really useful thing to figure out when you're sitting down across from, you know, say uh, a Korvold player and a Tatiova player and an Olero player and a Krenko player. You can probably easy, easily see what the different end goal is for each one of those decks. And then that might inform, you know, when to attack certain people and how to do so. You know, there are certain opponents, if you're trying to go for a long game, well, your biggest threat might not be the person who wants a fast game. It might be the other person who wants a long game because they're the person that you're going to be fighting with the most when it gets to that late stage. Uh, so that's another thing that can also potentially be helpful is just sort of evaluating who wants what length of game can also just be a really easy start, I think, when you're trying to figure out who is your threat. Uh, one kind of high level comment I'll make here as we delve into these more specific um, ways you can judge threat is you need to really focus on being very detached from this and very, I don't know if cold's the right word, but, but you have to, when you're looking back on a game and like thinking about what just happened, you have to remember that you might not have had that that information when you made your decision at the time. Sure. So just because you made a decision that wound up being incorrect doesn't mean the conclusion you reached at the time right. with the information you had was wrong. So like we'll we'll get into some of these specific things, but you really have to bear in mind that um, the the time when you made that choice you had much less less information than you had when you're looking back at the end of the game and remember that when you evaluate whether you were right or wrong just because you were wrong doesn't mean that was the wrong choice and vice versa yeah i really like that point dana that information is always evolving and the mm -hmm. game state is evolving so making sure what happened last turn isn't impacting something that that is happening happening this turn that is a bigger deal and something you need to, to address sooner than later. Uh, that's a very good thing to keep in mind. All right, so let's get into some of those those different lenses, those different perspectives. Um, let's actually try and get try and access some of those concepts here. One of the first ones that we wanted to talk about was the idea of threats by color. So you know, of course, the five colors in Magic: white, blue, black, red, green. Each one of them has a different specialty, and each one of them has a different weakness. All of the colors, the color pie has built-in strengths and weaknesses, of course. And so, I think one of the main things that we probably do when we run into that idea is that we should exploit other colors' weaknesses. For example, classically known that red can't really deal with enchantments very well. So if you are playing an enchantment deck, you would probably be really benefited uh, playing against them. But I think that there's a way that we can take that one step further too, because by analyzing specifically what a color's strength is, you can kind of sort of hit it at the knees to completely knock that over before they're able to pick up any momentum at all by knowing the ways that green draws its strengths, the ways that black draws its strength. Its strength. So you can actually kind of prevent the snowball from ever beginning to roll down the hill if you know what the color strengths are and evaluate the threat assessment that way. I, I think the really simple example of this that I think everybody knows and uses in a game is blue and counterspells. If there's a blue deck at the table, even the most novice player for the most part, I've witnessed to do that one two mana thing where they're like counting to see how much blue mana is available or just asking how much blue mana can you make um it, which is a, a good thing to do and an important thing to do but you can do that with every color every color has a thing like that and right. it, it's relatively easy to take that first step with blue but i think like you said joey you can do that with every color. You just have to really think about it because it's not usually as obvious as two blue mana means maybe a counterspell. 
Well, yeah, and, and I think there's also different advantages within colors, but to build upon that, you can do different strategies within those colors too, and, and how much you know the the threat assessment needs to to pivot off of that. Even when you're looking at different strategies um, with similar colors, um, a good example of this is. Uh, Joey, you and I both have plus one, plus one counter decks. Yours is Rayon and Ishai, and mine is Ukim and Kazir. The way that we have to assess the threats, even within those plus one, plus one counter strategies, is very, very different. Uh, I know mm. on twitch.tv slash EDH Retcast, um, <laughs> there was the a game where I was playing Ukim and Kazir, and I was playing a bunch of setup cards. I had probably three or four different things that were going to enable plus one, plus one counters before I ever played Ukima. Whereas with your deck, you rush Ishai out as soon as possible and, and you kind of build from there. And so just how those decks within that same strategy are functioning, it's really interesting to see because, you know, you have to get Ishai off the battlefield as soon as possible, whereas you have to get my enablers off the battlefield. And it's just a, a weird but interesting thing to notice because, yeah, the threat assessment just within the same strategy um changes quite a bit. Yeah, I really like that because that is a way that you can sort of, uh, you know, nip that in the bud. You can stop that from ever really being able to take off, like you said, by getting specifically rid of your enablers. But in my case, for my Ishai example, like getting rid of the counter gatherer in the first place is really the much bigger problem. Um, and if we sort of expand that to look individually at different colors, I think there are some really big examples of ways that you might be able to prevent the deck from being able to chain things together and being able to snowball. So green Green is a really obviously super powerful color, but one of the main strengths that it draws for almost all of its abilities is that its creatures are so dang huge and awesome and powerful. A lot of Green's card draw really frequently tends to build around the fact of having powerful creatures, like a Rishkar's Expertise. So we could evaluate like, oh, Rishkar's Expertise is a really powerful card, but we could also just make sure, make a conscious effort of never allowing the Green player to get a really powerful creature in the first place that would allow them to then have a power Powerful payoff like the Rishkar's expertise. Well, and how this is irrelevant to, to bring it back full circle to threat assessment is because the green player whose strength is based on creatures and whose knees you can take out from under them by <laughs> removing those creatures is also much more dangerous with six creatures in play than perhaps the mono white player is. So, like sure. when you're evaluating that threat, that weakness that the green player has that's their strength when they're built up is different than when another color has that basically same board state. See, right, I exactly. Thought, I thought green's greatest strength was wizards of the coast because the <laughs> R&D team <laughs> that's makes definitely them a, so good at everything. That's definitely a pocket ace for sure. Okay. Okay. That's, that makes sense. Oh uh, no, that's scathing, but accurate. <laughs> I mean, yep. 2020 has done some great things for green players, which I and do so did, definitely appreciate. And 2019, honestly, and 2018, so and 2017, and yeah. 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 Uh, well, so let's go to another example, though. So, I mean, green, it's creatures. That is something that you can sort of, uh, you know, cut it off at the head. But then take the example of black. Dana, what is an area that you would probably try to attack black from, knowing its strengths that might prevent it from being able to snowball? Uh, life total for sure in black because so many things in black are built around using life as a resource, um, you know, draw especially, but a, but a lot of other things do. And there's been, you know, I, I love paying life to draw cards in black 
Um, but you really do. <laughs> there's been plenty of times when I've been down to two life, and I you can't cast that Knight's Whisper. Now at three life you can cast it, and I and I have, <laughs> but 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 at two you literally can't. Um, and it it definitely you know that 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 necropotence is way less scary when the person's at six life than it is when they're at fifty six. So it's a weakness for black, and the inverse there is when the mono white player or the mono red player is at sixty life somehow. That is way less worrisome than when the black player is at sixty life. They are a much bigger threat than other colors are with that high life total. I mean, this this is manifest purely in Kirik. I mean, that commander yeah. being able to use your life as mana across all of your black spells and abilities is insane. And like, that's just that is the the peak in my mind, at least, of showing this off as black uses its life total as a resource more than any other color. Yeah, very, very much. Um, to, and, and it's important there, too, that like that's not necessarily something that is on board. That is something sort of almost above the game. It almost doesn't feel like it's necessarily a piece of it. But that, I think, also applies when we look at a color blue. Like, the ways that blue can be very, very powerful and that you might want to, you know, be aware of how to, quote unquote, cut them off or something like that probably doesn't have too much to do with what you're seeing on the battlefield. The times when blue is the most dangerous like is when they have a bunch of cards in hand. I've seen so many times where a blue player has drawn like 10 cards, 15 cards, but they don't have a lot in play. And that makes them look way less threatening than they really are because they just drew 15 cards. But it might be easy to miss if you're just looking at the stuff in play and you're missing all of the advantage that they've just accrued that they will then be doling out over the next few turns. Like that makes them way, way more scary than any, you know, board state that has a whole bunch of stuff going on, or at least that looks like it's got a whole bunch of stuff going on. The blue player probably just just found an answer to everything else that's going on there because of how many cards they just drew. So like that's a color that I'd be very scary of of having stuff, but not necessarily because of what they have on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah I mean, if if the blue player draws 10 cards, chances are one of them was Cyclonic Rift. Let's just be or, open. Or at the very least, a counter spell that's going to stop you from doing whatever it is you were counting on doing. Right, absolutely. Now, let's also compare sort of uh, red and white. I think that, like, if there's a red player, one of the things that I'd be more afraid of them having on board is, like, a whole bunch of tokens in case of something like a shared animosity or one of my personal favorites, Mercadia's Downfall. Like, I'm way more afraid of red having a whole bunch of tokens because of those sudden pump spells out of nowhere compared to a color like white, where I'd be much more afraid of something that rewards the tokens before they enter play, like, say, Cathar's Crusade. I think you can flip that around, too, though. If you have a Perforos on the battlefield, sure. you can probably bet that the red player is going to put a hurting on you in the next couple turns. <laughs> um, and Perforos is hard to deal with. Being an indestructible, typically enchantment, not an actual creature, Yeah, that's hard to deal with. Um, but I do agree that, you know, they both have ways of making something very unassuming pretty scary pretty quick. But even... Something like Tashar in mono white, that can snowball pretty quick too. Yeah, yeah. A, a black deck that's going wide with a bunch of tokens, you can probably do the math um, and have that math not change when those creatures come crashing in on you. That isn't necessarily the case with with red and, and green, and much more so. But yeah, definitely with red. Um, whereas black, for the most part, you know what you're looking at. There's just not a lot of things that like that pump those creatures in mass um, like you get in, in red and green for sure. So again, a good example of 
of what's scary in one slice of the color pie is not nearly as scary elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. All things being equal, when you're looking around the table, if everyone has the exact same resources, the exact same board state, there are still different colors that are going to respond to those resources in that board state differently. So probably be more like this can inform the ways that you want to attack those threats. If you see that the black player is going to be using, you know, their life as a resource all the time, attack them more proactively to stop that from being a resource that they can use as often. If you see that the green player has a whole bunch of creatures, but so does the blue player, maybe get rid of the green player's creatures first, because then they won't be able to use those to trigger additional benefits in the ways that the blue deck probably isn't ever going to do. And similarly, green isn't necessarily going to use its life total the way that another color might. So just just a, a way that you can make sure that you are evaluating threat assessment based on the colors that people are playing and that they have access to. And another thing too that I think is just kind of fun to mention is that we do also probably need to mention the the engines and payoffs is another interesting component to this conversation, too. We discussed this on episode 121, I think, where, you know, the stuff that is an enabler for a strategy in one color might actually be the payoff for a different strategy. So make sure that you evaluate that, too, when you're talking about threat assessment to make sure that you're not, you know, treating one thing the way that it isn't necessarily in a different context. I mean, yeah, a massive way to point that out is, Joey, your your Sir Conrad deck when we play against that deck, we pretty much can't let you play magic because, <laughs> and, and, and I say that like partially in jest, but you are able to just get so out of hand so fast once you have everything going. Whereas Sir Conrad in my Taysa Karlov deck, for example, not nearly the must answer threat sure. that it happens to be. It's, it's a very good card mm -hmm. um, and I definitely get value from it, but not in the ways that your deck is specifically built to take advantage of. So it's it's interesting that, you know, like you said, specific cards in different decks, how they need to get managed depending on what the person is doing and just sometimes just your familiarity with the other person's deck. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've spent a lot of time on that particular topic, but another one that we kind of wanted to mention was the idea of tunnel vision. This being basically that sometimes we can get so focused on what we're doing in our decks that we maybe lose sight of everything else that is happening across the board, across the table. Um, that can be something that sometimes affects our threat assessment too. So we wanted to just sort of talk about the idea of tunnel vision and maybe some examples of tunnel vision. That way we can sort of extract ourselves from it to have better threat assessment. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, commander players can definitely get pretty severe tunnel vision here and get too focused on on what it is they want to do, whether it's their game plan or whether it's just a really cool collection of cards in their hand that they want to see make some fun interaction. Um, it's really easy to get bogged down in that and, and, and have that alter your perception of what's actually happening in the game. Uh, yeah, Dana, you've got a, a, a pretty big example of why you hate wheels so much, for example. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, like, I, I have had situations um, where someone drops a smothering tithe and you know passes the turn and a person casts a wheel and, and in this the, the game where it happened the person who played smothering tithe was playing a wheels deck so it, it wound up the, the the second player casting a wheel just gave the smothering tithe player 20 you know some mana and a fistful of cards one of which was probably another wheel to just then chain that off into infinite mana and card draw. 
Um, right. And, and if you're so focused on your own hand, yep. like the reason to cast like a Reforge the Soul, for example, you're out of cards in your hand, so you want to refill it, use a Reforge the Soul that will get you back into the game. At least that's the idea. But if you're so tunnel visioned on your own hand and you miss the smothering tithe across the mm-hmm. field, like that, that might look like an advantage to you, but it is actually directly passing advantage over to another player. Well, I, I actually had a wheel situation that came up at Command Fest. Um, and, and apologies to the player if you're listening who, who wound up doing this. Um, but I was playing my credit fling deck and I had explained it was a fling deck where my goal was to make a giant creature that I would then fling at somebody and we had a situation where I had like a 26-26 creature in play and the person who was clearly a threat besides me was at like 22 life they were going to die if I could fling the fact that I hadn't flung that creature would make you think I didn't have one in hand then that person cast a wheel ah and and pass the turn back to me, at which point I flung the creature and killed them. Um, that was very much a like, I want to cast this wheel right now, and I'm not thinking about what the what that means for the board state. I mean, I think to to zoom out of that that situation specifically and just focusing on board awareness. Um, it's not just for blue players. <laughs> as much as you know, I I want to deny that, uh, but just paying attention to kind of what people are doing on their turns just as much as what is available on your own turn always want to be looking forward at least to the next turn um, and and making adjustments like what dana said earlier taking all that information that comes out as people are playing you know if if you're playing out your entire hand and and just going all out um, maybe look over at that you know that that orzov player who hasn't played any creatures in a while Uh, they might be pocketing a board wipe waiting for somebody to overextend so yeah. being keen on not just what people are playing, but what people are not playing, that can be just as valuable to be observing mm-hmm. and just making sure you're seeing what everybody is doing and not just on your own turn. I, I really love that lesson, not just paying attention to what someone did, but what they are not doing. Dana, in that example, you didn't have, you you hadn't f- flinged, flung? <laughs> flang. You hadn't flang, flang. You had flarned, flarned. You hadn't flarned the, the crash, which could have given away information that you didn't have access to that ability. And that could be information that someone then leverages against you. Yeah. And then Matt, I love the, the board wipe example too. Like that's a, a, especially in the one-on-one magic, like that's something that you really have to sort of watch out for when your single opponent isn't committing anything to the board there could be a reason like that can definitely inform the stuff that you're doing there too and another i think the biggest example for me of tunnel vision is the example of expropriate like how many times have you guys seen a player say "Mm, no i want to keep my possessions i want to keep my stuff go ahead and take an extra turn like i feel like that's very classic tunnel vision right there i I, I will trade my game for this one creature (laughs) that yeah that not only is is giving them a card to keep your creature uh, that's giving them a land drop, that's giving them an attack step, that's giving them an untap step. You're giving so much up when it could just be, okay, yeah, take my 1-1 one, one goblin token. Congrats. Well, it probably, it probably won't be the 1-1 one, one goblin token. It might be your commander, but sometimes getting losing your commander is better than losing the game. So mm-hmm. like that's just a, that, that's a really big sticking point, I feel, for a whole lot of players. Um, there are a couple of other lenses that we want to use, but before we get to them, we want to challenge some stats. There's a whole bunch of information on EDHREC, a whole bunch of data, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards are seeing too much play, sometimes too little play. So what we like to do is challenge those statistics here. So my pick for challenge stats this week is dual 
Castor Mage. It's in just over 11,000 decks in EDH Rec. Uh, three mana, red, red, and a colorless for a 2-2 human wizard that has flash. And when it enters a battlefield, copy, target, instant, or sorcery spell, and you may choose new targets for the copy. It's a very, very good card. It does a lot of things um, very well, and there's some really good combos with it. However, I'm going to say it's a little bit overplayed. And here's why. I think it gets compared a lot of times to Eternal Witness and a Snapcaster Mage, but it's not those cards. Those cards are relatively unique compared to Dualcaster in that Eternal Witness is in colors that can take advantage of it being attached to a creature. You can use it for an overrun. Green does a really good job bringing creatures back from the graveyard. Similarly with Snapcaster in blue, there's not a lot of other things that bring things back from your graveyard in blue, it's a very unique effect there. That's not true of Dualcaster Mage. There's a whole bunch of things in red that do what Dualcaster Mage does, and they tend to synergize with other things that red does way better than a body does, like it is with Eternal Witness or Snapcaster. Um, I recently built an Adelaide's The Cinder Wind deck that cares about copying spells, and Dualcaster Mage is just a bad card in that deck compared to the half a dozen red options that do the same thing, whether it's Reiterate or Fork or even like Twin Cast and Blue. Um, you know, I won't go over the whole list, but like it doesn't lend itself to spell mastery. It doesn't get auto copied with things like Swarm Intelligence or Thousand Year Storm. I can't get it back from the graveyard with Finale of Promise or, or Mystic's Mastery. Um, you can't pseudo copy with Narset's Reversal. It, it's a good card, but I think people get way too um, caught up in the fact that it's attached to a body that really isn't that good and can't even be skull clamped most of the time. So I'm not saying it's not a good card, but I think you should take a look at the deck if you're running dual caster and make sure you're not just overpaying for a body because you think it's you're, you're thinking in terms of how good Snapcaster and Eternal Witness are when those bodies are much more abusable. Well, but but Dana, this can be a chump blocker, and also it has a combo with Ghostly Flicker, so I'll have you know I'm unsubscribing. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> no, like, I think that that's a, a good lesson. It's like, to keep in mind, why are we using this particular effect? I think the chump blocker, in my mind, is, like, really, really appealing to make sure that I don't, like, get attacked for a whole bunch. But mm -hmm. also these days, I feel like anytime that someone attacks me, a.k.a. Matt, it's usually with, like, a 2020 that also has trample anyway. <laughs> right. So maybe that's not as useful in having a spell effect that synergizes, that can proc other spell triggers, like you mentioned. Uh, that's a, a pretty good thing to keep in mind. What is the function of the spell? When do I cast it? And when I cast it, would an actual spell serve me better in those scenarios? So how about you, Matt? What do you have here for us. So I have a pick that is courtesy of a patron. So if you go to patreon.com slash EDH retcast and join us at the $10 a month level, um, you get access to submit in a special channel on the discord, uh, a monthly or a weekly challenge stat where we will read one of those every week. So this week's that I'm choosing to promote, because I think it's a very, very good one from a deck that I used to play, um, comes to us from Nick um, at PlaidClad on Twitter. He challenged Fact or Fiction in Niv-Mizzet Perrin decks. So currently, Fact or Fiction is being played in 29% of Niv-Mizzet decks out there. Uh, and it's basically four mana, reveal the top few cards of your library, and you get two piles, and then you get one of those piles. 
Um, the big thing that Nick really keys in here on his challenge though, is that when you separate those piles and you put one into your hand, you are not actually drawing those cards. So you're not getting draw triggers off Niv-Mizzet. You're only getting the one from the cast trigger, but that's about it. For four mana, there are so many other spells that you can be casting, even at instant speed, that are going to get you draw triggers, which will then trigger Niv-Mizzet dealing a damage. All sorts of crazy things will happen with that. So 29% of Niv-Mizzet decks playing Factor Fiction is too high, and I 1000% agree, Nick. This is a great challenge because you want to be drawing cards. You don't want to be putting them into your hand because then you're losing out on half of Niv-Mizzet's abilities, which isn't really something you want to be giving up in any given commander game. I mean, but I do love me some Factor Fiction. At the same time, though, I know for a fact that Nick is also a Sir Conrad player, so we can definitely trust everything that he says forever. <laughs> I think that you you like the graveyard for other reasons than why Factor Fiction is not <laughs> playable. Well, it's not not that it's not playable. It's not unplayable. It's it not just doesn't ideal. It's, it is worthy of a challenge of being overplayed, which I think we agree with. But yes, Factor Fiction yeah. is fine if you're a necromancer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as a necromancer myself, I guess I'll move on to my challenge now, which actually has nothing to do with necromancy at all. But it does have to do with another one of our patrons, our friend Lenny Woolley, that is at Lenny Woolley on Twitter. He has a really ridiculous Urza Lord High Artificer deck. And I feel like that's probably a redundant statement to say a ridiculous Urza Lord High Artificer deck because... Urza himself is just an absolutely ridiculous card in general. But the thing that makes Lenny's deck really special is that it's an all gumball deck. Like none of the cards cost over the cost of a gumball, which is 25 cents. So it's a super budget deck and it still completely kicked my butt. At the Command Fest, he used specifically a card called Battered Golem. This is a three mana, three two artifact creature golem that doesn't untap during your untap step. But whenever an artifact comes into play, you may untap the Battered Golem. This synergizes beautifully with Urza's ability to tap an untapped artifact you control to produce a blue mana so that you can then cast more artifacts and then untap the battered golem. It doesn't even show up on Urza's page right now, and that's just not fair at all because I can tell you from firsthand experience, this was one of the scariest things that he was doing, and it... I, it this is a begrudging respect because it really, really kicked my button. I'm, I'm using this challenge as a way to say I'm still maybe a little bit salty about it. <laughs> it was so good. It, it knocked you speechless. That's what we'll knocked, go with. Absolutely. Yeah, it was just a really, really great one. Man, our patrons have some really cool challenges. I absolutely love this. All right, let's move back into the topic now of the threat assessment. Go to another perspective, another idea, another way to sort of uh, approach the vague topic of threat assessment. The next thing that we kind of want to mention about it is the idea of making sure that you use the right answer for the right threat. Uh, some answers can respond to different types of threats more effectively than others. Uh, Assassin's Trophy is an amazing card but it can't kill an indestructible god, for example. It doesn't yeah. do you any good if there's a Blight Steel Colossus tearing its way your direction. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so it's like that kind of thing you need to you need to pay, pay attention to and, and, and to the best of your ability, try to evaluate whether or not the answer in your hand is going to solve the potential problem that you might be faced with. And also potential problem down the line, I would say. Mm -hmm. Like if you have an exile-based type of removal in your hand, but you know for a fact that someone else might be getting their, uh, their god online very soon so that it would become a creature instead of just an enchantment, that might be the type of removal that you sandbag specifically to point it where it will do the most damage. Well, and I think 
just as much as using the right answer, um, when and timing it is just as important. Um, I've seen so many people, as soon as a Blightsteel Colossus, for example, comes into play, people will immediately respond and try to path to exile it. It didn't do anything, it, it didn't attack them, but they just wanted to make sure it was off the battlefield. Sometimes you can use other people's threats to your advantage. I think I've seen Dana, for example, cast Berserk on other people's creatures that were attacking another opponent more than he's cast on his own creatures, for example. <laughs> so making sure that if you see a big threat on there, but you have an answer, do you have to use it right then and there? Or can you save it yeah. and make sure that they're doing damage to other players that aren't you? That is something that I think every Magic player can get better at, especially myself, because I know I've had those emotional responses. You know, my gut churns up real quick and I know that I want to act first. But sometimes you can let other people do the work for you. And that is the best feeling. Yeah, very, very much. Kind of circling back into it, too, like just knowing the different types of threats that your opponents will present. And this can be just a surface level observation that you have when you're just, you know, looking around the table and you've got an artifact opponent and an enchantress opponent, and then also maybe a creature based aggro type of opponent somewhere else on the table too. Maybe you'll wind up with a card in your hand like Austere Command, which can, it has a bunch of different modes and you can destroy a bunch of creatures or you can destroy artifacts and enchantments. Let's say the aggro player is getting off to a really good start and they've got this huge board full of creatures. You could fire off your austere command to make sure that that board goes away. But that is also an answer that really specifically handles your other two opponents really, really efficiently because you can destroy all the artifacts and all the enchantments, which are like the cornerstones of their decks. So I would say like even yeah, if you have the opportunity to destroy all of the creatures, that one card might be one of your biggest and best answers against the other two players in that example. So that could be worth sandbagging a bit because that answer is going to fit more neatly to a different type of problem. So don't just use it right away. There might be other problems down the line that these answers are better suited to. Well, I, th I think a lot of this kind of comes down to, you know, you mentioned threats down the road. There's very much a big picture component of this. Um, just because a thing is a threat now and you can deal with it, doesn't mean there isn't a larger potential threat that's going to show up next turn of the turn after that if you really look at the board state you can possibly see coming and you'll be better served dealing with that threat then than dealing with the lesser threat now that just just because you can yeah but de delaying your responses as long as possible while still making sure you're alive is a skill that it, it takes a lot of practice to kind of narrow down um, but making sure that you just diversify your removal suite and just the way that you're going to interact with other people's threats um, like we said sometimes having all destroy effects isn't good you know that assassin's trophy may not be able to address certain threats, uh, but eat to extinction will because it is an exile type of effect. So making sure that you pack enough different types of interaction to navigate any given situation is something that probably should be kept in mind a little bit more in a lot of deck building thought processes. Well, and sometimes just taking a hit from something that only allows you to to hold on to your removal until a point in the game when it's maybe more important it can make you look less threatening. Sometimes when right. you when you get smacked and your life total drops to, to 19 and everyone else is still in the upper 20s, you're not in that danger zone necessarily yet, but you look less threatening because you're at the lowest life total and you look less threatening because you didn't respond to it. So then That's the assumption it, yeah. is perhaps, well, maybe that person has nothing. I can ignore them and deal with somebody else then. 
Yeah, see, I, I don't know I if I to... I don't know if I buy that though because if Dana, if you have nineteen life left, that's four cards from Sylvan Library you can still draw. <laughs> that's a really good point. You're not wrong. Oh my god! But no, I, I really love that, and it kind of circles back to Matt's example too about the Blightsteel Colossus, which I think is sort of this mental stand-in that we as Magic players always use as like this big example <laughs> of a, a big threat that could come down. But like, even if you do have the perfect answer to that threat, you still don't need to use it right away, even when it is targeted at you, because you might have a substantial number of blockers that you can use to stave it off for a turn. Like, even if you do find the perfect answer, the timing really does matter so much because you might actually be able to manipulate the appearance of what you've got going on in your hand by by responding in a different way than other people would expect if you did have that removal. Like, it's kind of just a, a pretty classic bluff, but it can be very, very effective, Dana, like you mentioned, at tricking your opponents into thinking that you're more helpless than you actually are. Yeah, I mean, if you're pretty sure there's no more infect in the game, um, taking eight from a Blightsteel probably feels pretty okay because you then look much more vulnerable than you actually are in reality, which will make people alter their threat assessment of you. Alrighty, so we're moving now to our last perspective, the last lens that we want to use when we're talking about threat assessment. And this is kind of this cute little acronym that I came up with because, I don't know, it helps me compartmentalize during Games of Magic to have my cute acronyms. Um, but this is what I'm just calling, what do I get rid of? And that is R-I-D. Each one of those letters stands for a different way that I can evaluate threats on board. And they're just sort of, I think, really helpful lessons on how to engage with those things directly. And the first one, R, that stands for or replace ability. How easy is it for, you know, if you're asking, what do I get rid of on the opponent's side of the field? How easy is it for an opponent to replace whatever it is that you are removing? Because the more unique that effect is, likely it is, the more it'll hurt them when they lose it. And you don't want to use your removal on stuff that is much easier to replace because it's not as unique. It might not be as powerful. But the unique stuff, that is really a weak spot where you can actually do some real damage to your opponents. This is why removing a single token or even a couple tokens probably isn't necessarily a big deal. But removing a doubling season is very much a big deal. <laughs> right, because that's such a unique effect in Magic, especially if that's in like a Super Friends deck. Mm -hmm. That's like one of the few abilities that's going to be able to provide that type of effect. So that's why we want to make sure that we get rid of it because it is so hard to replace. Um, and I'm actually also going to use an example from a game that uh, the three of us played with DJ from Jumbo Commander on our stream, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. There it is. I'm, I'm one for four. I did a correct you, you plug did, there. You did, nice. you did well this time. Uh, but in, in one of those games, um, I had a really cool board state going on with a blood artist, which of course, when things die, that pings enemy players for one. And one of my favorite cards in my Sir Conrad deck, Tombstone Stairwell, which creates and kills zombies every single turn for each card in the graveyard. And it was a very hilarious situation that came up because when I cast the Tombstone Stairwell, you guys conferred with Jumbo for a while about what to get rid of, the Blood Artist or the Tombstone Stairwell, because he had an answer, but you guys didn't. And eventually you all decided on the Blood Artist. But that, I think, was really the wrong move. Like, when when you guys got rid of the Blood Artist, I was just, I breathed a sigh of relief because the Blood Artist is so replaceable in my Conrad deck. Conrad himself is practically a replacement to the Blood Artist. But the Tombstone Stairwell is such a bizarre, weird, 
old, unique card, that that was really the the main thing that is going to be way harder to replace. Well, now I, I will counter that here, Joey, with the I in your your rid system, <laughs> which is imminence. <clears throat> How soon will that threat be lethal? I thought you didn't like eminence. Uh, Eminence with an I, Matt. Oh, okay. So we're not talking. Eminence. Not eminence. Not not eminence. Eminence. My mistake. How how soon will a thing happen? Um, And in the example you gave there, Joey, um, I totally understand what you're saying. You have a bunch of replacements for Blood Artist, but you didn't have one in play right then and there that was dealing eight damage to us every time those, those zombies all died. So... That's something we can deal with next turn when you play the replacement, <laughs> whereas the Tombstone Stairwell was causing an issue with the Blood Artist right now. So how soon something is going to be a problem um, very much makes a difference when it comes to dealing with threat, too. You mentioned doubling season before. I've seen that situation where somebody plays a doubling season that you would like to ideally remove. Then a Kozilek comes down. Well, I can deal with that doubling season because they're probably going to play some tokens next turn or something and get twice as many and then attack me the following turn. So I've got a little bit of time to figure out how to solve that problem. That cost like I don't, that's going to swing at me next turn and I'm going to lose, you know, four lands or something and get hit in the face for double digit damage. That's a problem I need to solve right now immediately or my game is going away. So that's very much an important thing to judge here is how soon you need to solve the problem because that makes a really big difference. Yeah, it's also like why we know to target combo pieces, too, for example. Like when someone drops a Sanguine Bond on the battlefield, you're like, oh, all it takes is literally one other card and they will just like insta-win once one point of life swings in either direction and that's just an automatic game over. So I need to really focus on what's going on with that player as opposed to the person who's going to hit me for 12 next turn and 12 the turn after that and 12 the turn after that. Like that is a problem, but it is a, a less imminent problem. Yeah, if somebody's planning on beating you down with combat damage, chances are it's going to take them multiple turns to do that. Whereas if somebody's just trying to, like you said, Joey, somebody's just trying to tombstone stairwell and you're not going to get another combat step, getting rid of that blood artist was the most important thing for the other three of us in the game. Despite I know you you breathe a sigh of relief. Um, it but was my so engine. I still we. think you guys made the wrong move there. Like uh, the I. It was, it was the engine. Like, if you got rid of the Tombstone Stairwell, I didn't have other creatures that were dying. So the Blood Artist, I feel like you still would have gotten rid of the Eminence. The correct answer is, of course, to kill both of them. But I'm just saying. Well, the, the correct answer saying. is just to go and attack Joey first, um, which brings us to our next That's point, right. actually, here. <laughs> That's um, right. So the D is direction. So where is the threat pointed at? What um, is the, the first person that is going to be the subject of any given threats? Uh, like we hinted at earlier, if you see a Blightsteel across the battlefield, do you want to get rid of it immediately? The answer most of the time is probably not. There's the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. If there's a big army and you can convince somebody to attack the person to your left and not you, they're doing work for you. And, and like we said, it's it's pretty great actually to find a mutual enemy, say somebody has an answer make them use it say like i have no way to get rid of this threat man if there's something you can do uh you're gonna save us all so those types of moves and making sure that the direction is pointed not at you might be something that we need to keep in mind a little bit more 
What I think we've probably all played in those games where there's a threat that came down, we'll use Blightsteel again for an example, and based on your board state, you're positive it's coming your direction because you're obviously the threat. But for whatever reason, it doesn't go that way. It doesn't come at you or somebody else doesn't for whatever reason, see you as a threat and they want to remove it too. Um, so they've just saved you a card. Had you mm-hmm. jumped the gun and, and you know, been, been so sure it was actually coming at you before it did, um, you'd have wasted your removal spell versus making someone else solve that problem. Like that kind of thing does happen. Just because well, you are the obvious direction it's going doesn't mean it's going to go that direction. Well, and that's a great point because sometimes the biggest threat on the battlefield isn't a threat to you specifically. Right. If somebody has a massive army, but you have a sphere of safety and six enchantments on the battlefield, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. They can't attack you anyway. So why should you use a wrath then when you can wait till maybe they have an answer uh, for sphere safety? So pocket it until then when somebody actually has something that does threaten you specifically. Everyone's terrified of that blight steal but you're way less scared when you're holding a sudden spoiling. Yes, very much. Yeah, that's just it. The biggest threat isn't necessarily the biggest threat to you. But I think that there's another layer to this conversation that I kind of want to mix in here a bit too, especially for folks who maybe routinely or just sometimes cause, uh, they find themselves frustrated by their opponent's threat assessment, um, where it's just like, it feels like it's difficult to point everyone in the direction of like, hey, that player over there, she's the one who's clearly building up the biggest army. It's going to be the biggest problem. This is the player that we all need to collectively deal with, or else we're all going to lose this game. Like that, I feel like is a moment that we've probably all experienced in some way that we are, you know, we feel like we've identified the threat and and it can be frustrating if other folks maybe aren't as clued into that. But something that I found very humbling, very necessary in those moments is to ask, like, I guess, I don't know, in in my example here, like one of my favorite moments in a game of magic is when someone else vocalizes what they perceive the threat to be as their primary fear in the entire game. While I'm sitting over here with two answers to that threat, two answers to that exact problem in my hand. So like one of my enemies is super freaking out about it and trying to get everyone pointed in that direction. And they might be even potentially a little bit frustrated that I'm not evaluating that threat to be as big a problem as it is, but it's because I'm sitting on an answer. And that isn't something that we always remember is that like, if people aren't worried about it, it might not be because they're bad at threat assessment. It might be because they're sitting cool. They've already got it figured out. The the information you have isn't the same information everyone else has. Absolutely. I mean, I, uh, to plug again, the stream that we played games on, we had Andrew <laughs> Cummings on. And I remember there was, there was a specific play where I sequenced it, where I banishing uh, used a banishing light on uh, Marionette Master, where Marionette Master, whenever artifacts leave, um, he gets to ping people for I believe it's the power on Marionette Master. Um, so when I exiled that, and there there was bigger threats, there was an Akiri on the battlefield, there were all sorts of things going on. And, and Joe, you specifically said, "Are you sure you want to target that?" And I was like, "I absolutely do," because the very next spell that I cast was a wrath and i just didn't want that marionette master to get all those triggers going on so sometimes yeah you're working with information that is unique to you and other people have in their their own information on what's in their hand and oftentimes that information doesn't mesh unless people are playing with their hands face up so yes keeping in mind that what's in your hand is going to be very very different from what is in somebody else's hand and you're everybody's working with the information they have ready uh, so yeah, sometimes something doesn't make sense, 
but sometimes there is a plan behind what somebody else is doing or why maybe they're not worried in your example about something big and ugly across the battlefield. Something big and ugly across the battlefield. Me. That'll be me. <laughs> He's talking about me, Joey. I, I, it felt like it was it was like your tone is very pointed right now. It just said, I don't know. It's just sort of a thing that I noticed. I mean, I was more talking about Consecrated Sphinx because that thing is very big and very ugly. <laughs> and I don't want on the battlefield very long. Oh, man. And I can never tell where its face is on the card. Anyway, sorry. We're <laughs> going way uh, far afield. All right. So those were a couple of different lessons, a couple of different perspectives that we wanted to bring towards the idea of threat assessment, things that we've personally found helpful, hopefully some examples that also the listeners find helpful uh, when evaluating threats, maybe even figuring out, hey, am I the threat in these scenarios when all of these different lenses point towards me? Um, but I just want to ask, like, do we have any other final thoughts to maybe wrap up the ideas of threat assessment in ways that we can engage with it a little bit further? Learning how to assess threats in a game of Commander is a uh always changing, always evolving skill set that um, not only changes with the game and has the game develops and as the metagame develops, but it changes with the play group you're with too, because you know what deck and what color combo and what commander might be a threat in one person's hands is different in someone else's hands. And you just have to continuously reevaluate how you're assessing threat based on the situation and just understand that you are never going to get to the point where you're always doing it right all of the time. It's it's very much an art and not a science. And like all things in art, you have to continuously work at it to get better at it. I, I really like that. And, and in fact, like as you mentioned, always evolving, there are some games that we play where you guys target Dana first instead of always. Which is me. wrong. It does Definitely wrong. It's <laughs> as long as it's not me. That's all I care about. But that's a good example because we're like we all, I think, came from, you know, a, a year ago we were playing in metas at home for the most part. Um, and now we've switched to, I would say, our, our, our most frequently played in meta is playing with each other and a guest on the stream at Twitch TV slash EDH Redcast <laughs> on Wednesday nights, <laughs> 6 o'clock Eastern, 9 o'clock Pacific. And th that's been a that, that's been a shifting meta. I've had to learn how to assess threat differently based on that play group than I was, you know, playing here at home because you guys play your decks differently than maybe somebody here playing a similar similar deck would play it. It is interesting to listen to your other podcast, CMDR Central, Dana, and the conversations between you and Max, who you guys have I'm assuming played many games together over the years. Mm -hmm. And so how you guys have handled games within your own playgroups and then coming over and playing with Joey and I, it is kind of funny because like you said, the attitude of back home, people would play one th big threat and the job becomes, we got to answer this quickly. Whereas when you're playing games with us, it's, oh, there's a big threat. Oh, there's another big threat. Oh, there's another. Right. <laughs> and it's it just like you start playing whack-a-mole because the answer to a big threat is play an even bigger threat. So it's funny <laughs> that just how we're, we're still playing the same game, yeah. but just the way that people play, the mentality behind it can vary so much from playgroup to playgroup. That is, it's something that's always fascinating is just the, the people, the gathering behind it, and then just how the threat assessment varies. You know, yes, there are, you know, principles overarching between everybody playing, but then how the kind of the methods and how people address those within their own separate and individual games 
how wildly they can vary. It's just, it's so interesting to see. I, I think another lesson for me too, looking over all of these, it, like I think a big thing in Magic is that we all kind of want our victories and our losses to have something to do with our participation in that game. We don't want to lose to effects that we couldn't necessarily control, um, which can make it sometimes, uh, I think that can be what causes the frustration to visit us in those moments where we feel as though one of our opponents is making um a poor threat evaluation or something, or Daniel will go back to the smothering tithe and reforge this whole wheel example that you mentioned earlier. Like that can make it frustrating because in that situation, there was nothing necessarily that you were able to do to stop that opponent from getting an insurmountable advantage. Um, and like that, that is something I think interesting too, to like make sure that, you know, we maintain that feeling. We want our losses to have something to do with what we did. But at the same time, this isn't something that I feel like we have any ability to be high and mighty over when we're making threat assessments, even if we think we're making them correctly. Because even if we spot things that we think other players are missing, I mean, guaranteed there are things that we're missing too. There's always information that, you know, we aren't going to have privy to access in those games. Um, there's a whole lot more that we can always learn. These are thoughts that we wanted to share about threat assessment, but there's a whole lot that goes into it. It is extremely nuanced. Commander is a very complicated game, and this is a really interesting, like, this is an ever-turning learning curve, I guess. Like, we're always all going to be climbing it together. All right, well, guys, with all of that said, I think it is about time that we call this episode to a close. So, fellas, if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? So you can find me on the Twitter Twitter's at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5, and don't forget, Wednesday evenings we are streaming twitch.tv slash edhreccast. Coming up on the 16th, actually, we will have Craig Blanchett coming on the stream, and the over-under on Triumph of the Horde's cast throughout the entire <laughs> evening is at seven and a half, so keep an eye out for that. All the time those we've uh, we've been talking about the Blightsteel Colossus example, I feel like will be especially <laughs> right. relevant during those especially, games. Especially, like like triply so. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can read my articles on EDH Rec, and you can hear me a couple times a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And if you are looking to support the show, you can also find all of us on patreon.com slash EDH Reccast, where you can help us out. There's a couple different tiers, and you can even hang out in our newly formed discord and participate in all the dad joke shenanigans that are going on there <laughs> and i'm joey schultz you can find me at joseph m schultz on twitter and you can find the cast at edh Retcast on both facebook and on twitter and if you have a question you can contact us at edhretcast at gmail.com our thanks again to josh lequai and the whole team at the command zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast and of course our thanks to our sponsors tcg player and cardkingdom.com you can find them using the price info links on edh Rec or, of course, by visiting cardkingdom.com slash idiotrek to show your support for the show. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Wreck your deck.